Well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is uh, Jeff. Go ahead and find a seat as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and, uh, and mercy to us. Thank you that you are a uh, good father who gives good gifts to your children and that you are also uh, a good king and, uh, and sovereign. And so we, uh, we're grateful for an opportunity this morning for us to gather together as a, uh, a church and to uh, consider uh, what your word says about these various topics. And, uh, and so pray that you would help us this morning to think uh, more biblically, more Christianly, and, uh, and to uh, question our own presuppositions and uh, all those kinds of things. And so we ask for uh, your help and your blessing upon this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming this semester. Those of you who have been coming for a while know that we've been talking about social and political theology. We're, we're talking about things like uh, race and racism and, uh, and feminism and abortion and environmentalism and social justice and all of these kinds of things. And then last week we talked about uh, just warfare, that is whether and in what situations war is, uh, is justified. And then today's lesson actually kind of goes hand in hand with what we talked about uh, last week because this week we're talking about capital punishment. How are those related? How is uh, just warfare and capital punishment, how are those things related? Well, as we talked about last week, just warfare is, uh, is a, uh, kind of this doctrine that clarifies when it's appropriate for the state to execute foreign criminals. And, uh, and so capital punishment is similar in the sense that it is about the state executing domestic criminals. So the hope would be that you would listen to both of those lessons because what you believe about one kind of necessarily informs what you believe about the other. So today we're talking about capital punishment. In order to do so well, we need to answer a few questions. We need to know what is capital punishment? What does the Bible say about it? What if Christians thought about it historically? Is it sinful or not uh, today? Which crimes should qualify as capital crimes? And then what methods are acceptable and what are some of the principles uh, related uh, to that? So you'll note that of those six questions, the first four of them kind of concern the concept in and of itself Whereas the, uh, whereas the latter two are about particular instances or applications of the general concept. So we'll try to answer all of those, and then we'll consider a few objections and then uh, take some questions. Sound good? Y'all excited? Nothing like a chipper talk on state-sanctioned killing on Halloween weekend to really warm the soul. So let's begin. All right, what is capital punishment? Here's a uh, helpful definition for you. Capital punishment is the execution by the state of a criminal convicted of a serious or capital offense. Capital punishment is the execution by the state of a criminal convicted of a serious or capital uh, offense. And we often use the term capital punishment synonymously with the phrase death penalty, although technically those are actually a bit uh, distinct. There's a subtle distinction uh, between the two. Death penalty just refers to the sentence Whereas capital punishment uh, typically refers to the carrying out of that sentence by actual execution. So death penalty is what you get whenever you are sentenced, and then capital punishment is what's carried out in your actual execution. Now, why is it called capital punishment? Well, it's for a similar reason uh, that spanking refers to corporal punishment. Both capital and corporal, both of those words relate to underlying 
Latin words. So corporal is derived from the Latin word for body. So corporal punishment is a form of bodily or physical punishment as opposed to timeout or a well-placed sarcastic remark at your kid or something uh, like that. So that's corporal, totally different from capital punishment. Don't tell somebody you practice capital punishment with your kids. That's wrong, all right? Capital, as in capital punishment, is derived from the Latin word for head because capital punishment used to be practiced by decapitation. That was the process for, uh, um, uh, for executing someone. So you see the root of capital in the word decapitation. As uh, Michael Scott from the office says, his kappa was detated from his body. So that's what capital punishment entails. And, uh, and so the execution by the state of a criminal convicted of a serious offense. Now notice there are lots of important distinctions and nuances in that uh, definition, all right? That definition uh, assumes the existence of some sort of competent authority. It assumes the existence of a state or uh, the government. In other words, this isn't about personal retribution or personal vengeance or individual uh, actions or something like that. It assumes the existence of a competent authority. It also assumes there is some process that we consider due process and, uh, and justice in the idea that this criminal was convicted. They were convicted in the process of some sort of criminal uh, uh, due process. It also assumes there are some sort of standards uh, to help us distinguish what qualifies as an actual serious offense or a capital offense. It's not just that you are convicted of any offense, but of a serious or capital uh, offense. And so those are some of the things that are assumed under that definition. Now, uh, what we want to do before we really tackle capital punishment as a, uh, a general concept, or, or I'm sorry, from a biblical perspective, I thought it might be helpful to talk about this within the, our particular uh, milieu, or our particular environment here here in America, because one of the things that we're attempting to do this semester is not just talk about uh, topics in and of themselves, conceptually, but also really bring it down and clarify that topic within our own social and political perspective. That's what we're doing uh, this semester. And so um, uh, let's talk a little bit about capital punishment within the history of the U.S. In fact, you would need to go back even further uh, than the beginning of the U.S. because we have records of capital punishment being practiced here in the colonies as early as the 1630s. Now, obviously, at this time, the colonies were still under English rule. It wasn't until 1776 that uh, America uh, declared its independence. But according to English law at, uh, at that time and well into the 1800s, in fact, uh, they recognized hundreds of different uh, uh, crimes as being capital in, uh, in nature. In fact, I read one source that said that there were around 270 different crimes that were considered capital offenses in English law. And so there are records from the colonies here in, uh, on American soil uh, of execution for things like pickpocketing, or uh, even stealing bread. There was a, an execution for someone stealing bread. This reminds me of a scene from the TV show Parks and Rec, if you've ever seen that. This foreign official is talking about uh, how strict the government is in his home country of Venezuela, and he says, you're stealing, right to jail. You're playing music too loud, right to jail, right away. Driving too fast, jail. Too slow, jail. That's what this is kind of uh, going on in the, uh, in the early colonies. You could be executed for just about anything. Uh, not only that, but it was almost always done in public, so an average citizen might have witnessed a handful of executions by the time they were an adult. 
Thankfully, though, over time, that list of 270 or so offenses that could qualify as capital crimes was restricted, uh, mostly to cases of uh, first-degree murder. That's murder with deliberation, willfulness, and premeditation, as well as a few crimes against the state like uh, treason or something like that. Uh, Also around this time, capital punishment was removed from the public sphere. It was hidden kind of behind the walls of a prison. And so as a result, people aren't interacting with it all that often. And so there begins to be this growing um, uh, chorus of kind of disagreeing with the, uh, the doctrine or the idea, the concept of capital punishment. So through the 1800s, there's this growing opposition in America to the idea of capital punishment. And then that chorus of disagreement grows louder and louder, kind of has this snowball effect uh, throughout the end of the 1800s into the uh, beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, and so uh, by the middle of the 20th century, most European countries, uh, most, uh, in fact, most countries in the world had abolished the, uh, the death penalty. And so uh, you see this disagreement that's growing, particularly here in the, uh, in the US, uh, by the middle of the 20th century after World War II, uh, as society kind of had enough of death. And, uh, and so something about a civil war and two world wars within a uh, hundred years and about a million dead kind of will do that to you. And so America kind of had enough of death, has had the rest of the world. And so you see this growing uh, disagreement with the idea of uh, capital punishment. So in fact, today, uh, in order to be a member of the European Union, you have to officially abolish the death penalty within your country. And about three quarters of all countries in the world have abolished uh, the death penalty, even though capital punishment was historically embedded in just about every society that we have uh, records of. So every single culture just about throughout history has practiced some form of capital punishment, and yet today, about three quarters of all countries have uh, abolished it. So the U.S. is a bit of an anomaly uh, today on this subject uh, because it's one of the few, uh, if not the only Western democracy that still practices practices it. And even here, by the 1950s and the 1960s, this, uh, this opposition that I talked about, this kind of rumbling, had grown into full-fledged protests. Then in 1972, there was a very important Supreme Court case, Furman v. Georgia, and it ruled that capital punishment, as it was currently applied, was unconstitutional. Now, what's really interesting is that uh, in Furman v. Georgia, the Supreme Court didn't say that capital punishment in and of itself, uh, per se, is unconstitutional. It said that current laws were not clear enough on it. And so there was too many uh, opportunities for discrimination and, uh, and those kinds of things. And so states had the opportunity to kind of redraft their laws and, uh, and then they could uh, recontinue the practice. So a number of states did just that. Although some states decided not to do that, and so some states today don't have capital punishment. But a number of states rewrote their laws to provide some less arbitrary standards, and uh, capital punishment resumed in the late 1970s. And then in subsequent years, the court has continued to kind of clarify or restrict capital punishment in various ways. For example, uh, today, someone can't be executed for a crime committed under the age of 18. And people can't receive the death penalty for any crimes that don't result in death. And so that brings us to today. How prevalent is this uh, today? As it now stands, about 50 people are executed in the U.S. per year. The bulk of those where? 
right here in our backyard, right, right here in Texas. In fact, since the death penalty was reinstated, Texas has executed almost five times as many people as any other state. Although Oklahoma actually has a higher rate per capita. By the way, that's another word related to the Latin word for head. Per capita means per head because headless people don't count in surveys and so forth. So uh, a, a few more than half of all states today have the death penalty, but about a dozen of those that officially have the death penalty haven't actually executed anyone on death row for uh, over a, uh, a decade. So as a result, there are approximately 2,600 inmates on death row in the U.S. today, with uh, most of those residing in California, because they're technically st- uh, still a state that allows for capital punishment, but they haven't actually executed anyone in over 15 years. And I love the reason for that. There's political, social reasons, but also because uh, their supply of one of the main drugs expired, which just seems like a very good California reason not to execute someone because our drugs expired. So now you have some historical context of the particulars uh, of it, the, the scope of the conversation here in America. Let's talk a little bit about the Christian perspective on capital punishment. When it comes to addressing this topic from the Bible... Here's the primary question that you have to answer. There's, there's, there's kind of uh, secondary questions, but the primary question you need to answer is this. Is it sinful or is it not? And there's a spectrum of where people can land on the subject. Some people who really love it, some people who tolerate it, some people who hate it. There's a spectrum, but the primary distinction is between those who believe that capital punishment is sinful versus uh, those who think from a Christian perspective that it is not. So those who believe that it's, uh, it's sinful or it's unethical from a Christian perspective and those who think that it's not. And then within the category of those who think that it's not, you would have different views in, in terms of whether or not it's mandatory or merely permissible and in what situations and by what means. And so there's a whole lot of ambiguity here. But in general, I just want to frame the question like this. Is this something that from a biblical perspective, should be considered sinful and unethical and immoral or something that should be considered uh, to be righteous, not immoral. And, uh, and so uh, throughout church history, there's not really been uh, absolute consensus on this topic. However, as we saw with uh, just warfare, the overwhelming position of the church uh, has been that capital punishment is not sinful. Uh, in fact, that it is good and righteous and, uh, and at the very least permissible if not required uh, by God. Now, before the great theologian of the West, Augustine, that wasn't necessarily the case. There wasn't necessarily uh, this uh, more uh, universal position of the church. Uh, in fact, the early church fathers are kind of all over the place. Some were in favor, some were opposed. Uh, but one of the reasons that we see this disagreement is because this is not a very pressing uh, issue in the early church. Think about all of the things that are happening in the first few centuries of the church, and then you can understand why they might not have the time or the desire to spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics of capital punishment. Uh, the church is going through systematic periods of persecution. Uh, they're also trying to wrestle through things like deity of Christ and Trinity. And so they have much bigger fish to fry than arguing over the ethics of uh, this particular question, especially in a time where uh, they didn't really have any influence on the government. And, uh, and so... 
so before Augustine, uh, there's a whole lot of disagreement. But after Christianity has made the imperial religion in the uh, 300s, and then particularly after Augustine's influence in the 300s, there is much more consensus. So guys like Augustine and Aquinas and all the reformers and most of the other major thinkers in Christian history have all supported capital punishment per se. All right, there are a few opponents, but those generally are not significant central voices. Those were generally guys well outside the stream of, uh, of church tradition. So groups like the Anabaptists, who not only rejected violence, they were pacifists, but also rejected things like the Trinity. And so these are heretical sects in general that are disagreeing with capital punishment and just warfare as we talked about last week. So with the exception of a few consistent pacifists who uh, were just opposed to any violence whatsoever and they were outside the mainstream of the Western tradition, the church has generally held that capital punishment is permissible and that it's even prescribed. Now, why was this the position of the church? There are at least three different reasons that we wanna talk about. The first one's the meaning of justice. Second, the role of government. And third, the commands of scripture. Let's talk about the meaning of justice. One of the things that we've stressed over and over and over again this semester is that it's not enough to say that you care about biblical words. You have to then define those words in the way that the biblical authors would define those words. We've used this phrase before, but to do biblical deeds, you have to have biblical definitions. When the Bible says to love your neighbor, what does that love look like when you get invited to your neighbor's same-sex wedding, right? We all agree, or at least we should all agree, that you need to love that neighbor, but what does that love look like according to scripture rather than culture? So we see this confusion as it relates to the way that the culture uses a term uh, and the Bible uses a term in regards to justice. As we mentioned a few weeks back, social justice, as culture uses the term today, isn't at all what biblical justice entails. They're same words, but totally different uh, concepts. So it's really interesting that some of the leading proponents of, quote, social justice are actually opposed to capital punishment. In fact, there's almost a one-to-one correlation. If you tell me that someone is conceptually not just opposed to capital punishment as it's practiced today, but uh, opposed to the concept, the theory of capital punishment, if you tell me someone is opposed to that, in general, I can tell you what they think about just war theory, what they think about immigration, what they think about racism, what they think about feminism, and a host of other issues. In each of these cases, what's often happening is, is that this opponent will use the language of justice, but then apply a standard that according to the Bible is actually unjust. So we used this definition a couple of weeks back. I think it's helpful. What is justice? Justice is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standards of the moral law of God. Justice is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standards of the moral law of God. So notice there that justice is impartial and it's proportional and that it concerns what is due or deserved to each person and that it also has to align with God's revealed law. In other words, anything else isn't actually justice. It's something else. It's injustice that's pretending to be justice. And so when it, when it comes to the subject of penology, that is the study of crime and punishment, there are four main categories for the purpose of a punishment. Every punishment that you see codified in law seeks to accomplish at least one of the following 
purposes. Number one, it seeks to rehabilitate the criminal. Uh, we all know what rehabilitation is. That's the, the process by which a criminal is restored to society and becomes a better person, all right? Anytime you're watching a movie and someone is going through the, the process to make parole or something like that, that's what they're arguing about. Has that person actually been rehabilitated or not? The second purpose of some laws is restitution, all right, in which the victim is repaid. So if you steal, uh, you know, $50 from me and, and for whatever reason I decide to sue you for that $50, restitution is you giving me that $50 back. And so the victim being repaid is restitution. Some laws uh, or some penalties seek f- uh, for that. Another one is deterrence in which uh, this particular punishment is given in order to deter further crime in society. And then a fourth reason, and this is the reason that's really becoming less common in, uh, in uh, modern uh, theories of justice, but is very central in biblical justice, is retribution. Retribution is when a criminal is given a proportionate punishment as what is due for the sake of justice. Retribution, a criminal is given a proportionate punishment as what is due for the sake of justice. And when it comes to the Bible, we see each of these four purposes at play in various ways. Some punishments that you see in uh, scripture are about rehabilitation. Others are about restitution or deterrence. Many are a combination of two or three or all four of these. But when it comes to capital punishment, the main purpose that we see in scripture is not primarily rehabilitation or restitution or deterrence, but rather retribution. In other words, what you see in scripture is that the punishment of death is the proportionate punishment that is earned or merited or deserved for capital crimes. In fact, scripture explicitly says that it's an injustice when someone is not punished. Look at Ezekiel 13, 19, there in your notes. You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread. Notice this, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live. By the way, this is a strong rebuke of contemporary culture in which we celebrate abortion and we repudiate things like capital punishment, right? We celebrate the killing of the innocent, but then, man, we recoil at the death of the guilty, Numbers 35, 31, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. So for some crimes in the Mosaic law, there was a penalty, but you could pay a fine, a ransom, uh, and, uh, and then face some other punishment, but not for murder, not for murder. To allow someone to go free in that case was considered injustice. This isn't saying that God can't forgive or that God can't apply grace. You certainly see examples of that in scripture, but it is saying that the state was not sanctioned or permitted to do so. So let's talk a little bit about the state, but first let me recap. The first argument for capital punishment is that justice as historically understood and biblically uh, defined demands it because justice assumes retribution and for some crimes death is the only proper punishment. The second argument for capital punishment is the state, the role of the government. How so? Because the most common objections to capital punishment are birthed out of this uh, tendency that we have to conflate the role of the individual with the role of the state. In particular, what we do is we take passages about grace and mercy that God intends to apply on this personal individual level and then we try to read that onto the government and that just doesn't work. 
Here's what I, here's what I mean. If you steal for me, let's say you steal one of my sweaters or something, I have every right to forgive you, right? I can just simply decide uh, I'm gonna exercise grace toward you. You are forgiven like the uh, bishop in Les Mis. I can not only forgive, but I can let you keep what you stole and give you even more sweaters, right? All that you can imagine. But we don't want the state functioning that way, right? There are certain things that are good for an individual to do that we don't want the state doing. If you steal my sweater, the state does not have a right to forgive you and then just let you keep it. Why not? Because that isn't grace. That's injustice. By the way, this is why Christians, we've talked about this a couple of times this semester, this is why Christians should absolutely reject things like socialism and communism because those political theories conflate the role of the government and individuals. They're wolves of injustice wearing the sheep's clothing of love. So for the individual to exercise grace is a virtue. It's a good thing. But for the state to do that exact same thing often involves a perversion of justice because each has been given different roles. They have different responsibilities. So in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked about paying taxes. And what does he say? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this idea was developed extensively by uh, St. Augustine in his City of God. And what he did is he says that each person, each Christian wears two hats. He wears his hat as a Christian and he wears his hat as a citizen. Zach talked about, uh, about this a little bit last week. If you slap me as a person, as an individual, I turn the other cheek. That's what I've been told to do. But if you slap a police officer, when he's in uniform especially, he or she does what? Do they turn the other cheek? No, they shouldn't. They should put you in handcuffs and take you to jail. Why? Because you haven't just slapped that person, you've slapped the state. Nobody messes with Texas, right? So look at uh, Romans 13. This is probably the clearest text to support the idea that government has the right by God to exercise capital punishment. Romans 13, one through four. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there's lots of things to notice here. Number one, notice God is ultimately sovereign over all authority, right? No matter who wins the election next week, none of you better tweet out hashtag not my president. Whoever wins is your president, which leads to the next point. To resist authority is to resist God. We talked about a few exceptions to that when Jared discussed resistance and revolution. But in general, this is the standard. To resist authority is to resist God. Number three, government is supposed to be scary. Look at those words there in Romans 13. Rulers are supposed to be a, quote, terror to those who are bad. And you should, quote, fear and, quote, be afraid of the one in authority if you do bad. If you pull a a knife on a cop, if you resist arrest, if you assault an officer, you should be afraid. The Bible tells you that is the appropriate response. Number four, part of the way that government works for your good is by punishing the bad, by being, quote, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So when the government fails to carry out this mandate, society suffers. Just ask the residents of Seattle or Minneapolis or Philly 
once the police stand down. Things don't get better. They unravel into chaos because it's good to punish the bad and it's bad to not punish the bad. And then lastly, notice that punishing the bad even includes something like capital punishment. That's almost certainly what Paul means when he says, quote, he does not bear the sword in vain. It's a random fact about me, not to, uh, to brag or anything, but I actually own three swords. One is a part of a decorative set. If you go into my office here at the church, you'll see it. Uh, buddy gave it to me because his uh, wife said, quote, that's not going in my house. Another is a wooden sword that a buddy of mine smuggled, uh, smuggled I think is the appropriate word actually uh, for how he got it into the country, but he smuggled it from Japan. And the third I purchased in Mexico as a teenager. And man, it is so wobbly. If, I feel like if I pick it up, it's gonna break. Now, here's my question. Is something like that what Paul means when he says the sword? No. What did you use a sword for in the first century? It, a sword wasn't something you put up on a shelf and it just looks cool as a decorative item. You don't use it to reap a field. You don't use it to cut your goat steak or something like that. What do you use a sword for? You use a sword for killing people. So when Paul writes that the government bears the sword in the context of punishing the evil or the wicked or the bad, he clearly assumes capital punishment. How else do you punish with the sword? Look also at 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It would be really hard to build a theology of capital punishment off of this one verse. But when you would take into account uh, Romans 13 and the Old Testament context that we'll talk about, this passage helps supplement the argument. Notice what it says that the government is to do. Punish those who do evil. That word punish uh, literally means to take vengeance upon. In other words, earlier we talked about what punishment entails and we looked at the various purposes of penalties, rehabilitation, restitution, deterrence, and retribution. This is a clear passage that says that at least part of the role of the government when it comes to sentencing is, uh, uh, is resti- uh, retribution, acting as an agent by whom God acts for justice or vengeance. For you as an individual to take vengeance is wrong. For the state to act as an agent of God to enact vengeance is right. It's biblical. So to this point, we, uh, we've seen that an argument can be made for capital punishment from the meaning of justice and the responsibility of the roles of government. But let's, more, uh, let's get more directly into the Bible. The primary, reasons, uh, the primary reason that Christians have held that capital punishment is not sinful is simply because God commands it. We've talked about this uh, a bit last week, but there's this profound difference that we need to maintain in our minds because it's a biblical distinction uh, between righteous violence and unrighteous violence, and thus between righteous killing and unrighteous killing. All murder is sin, but not all killing is murder, and thus not all killing is sin. If you don't understand that, you need to go back to Scripture and wrestle with that. When God commands Israel to kill the Canaanites, that isn't sin. In fact, it isn't just not sin, like it's some morally neutral thing. Instead, it's good, it's righteous, it's faithful. So also when God commands capital punishment, that isn't sin, it's good. Oftentimes what happens for us is we become embarrassed by God's commands and we shouldn't ever be embarrassed by anything that God approves of or anything that God commands. And make no mistake, God does command capital punishment. In fact, he does so before the giving of the Mosaic law and in the Mosaic law and in the New Testament. Why is that important? Because it helps us to understand 
This isn't really in the same category of things like eating shellfish or wearing clothing of mixed fibers or some other ethnic temporal aspect of the Mosaic law. That's oftentimes what people will say. You see Old Testament, you see capital punishment just in the Mosaic law and because we're not under the Mosaic law today, therefore we shouldn't practice it uh, today. But instead what we see, it's before the law, it's in the law, it's actually after the law in the Old Testament, in the historical literature and in the prophets, and it's also in the New Testament. In other words, this is a permanent binding reflection of the will of God and the law of God as it relates to murder and so forth. So where do you see this before the law? Primarily in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, one of the primary arguments against using this passage uh, to support capital punishment is to say, yes, the Bible does say that, but that isn't prescription. This is just a prediction. It's like a proverb that says, if you dig a pit, you'll fall into it. This isn't saying that if you murder someone, that you should be killed by the state. Instead, it's just saying, generally, if you kill you'll be killed. That's kind of the law of the land, the law of the jungle or something like that. That it isn't prescriptive, it's predictive. But notice that doesn't work. Notice the rationale there. It says, for God made man in his own image. By the way, does that seem like the reason for the command is rehabilitative? Does it say that if you kill, that you should be rehabilitated? No. Does it seem like the primary meaning there is restitution? No. Does it seem like it's deterrence? No, what is it? It's retribution. Murder is likened to treason against God himself, so the punishment is death. Look at the previous verse, Genesis 9, 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That idea of reckoning there is the same idea as retribution. The passage isn't saying that this might happen, It isn't merely predictive. It's saying that God requires it to happen. It's prescriptive. So is this still binding? Is Genesis 9, 5, and 6 still binding? I think so, for at least two reasons. Number one, the basis for the command wasn't tied to something specific to culture, but rather to the image of God. Why was capital punishment instituted? Because to kill man is to assault the image of God, and that has not changed. So I don't think there's any reason to think that the law has changed. Secondly, this is part of the Noahic covenant which is universal in scope rather than being ethnic and temporary as with the Mosaic covenant. And speaking of the Mosaic law, uh, where do we see capital punishment there? You see it all over the place. Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 24, 21, whoever kills an animal shall make it good and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Death. You see it also in Numbers 35, 30 through 31, Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13. Now, obviously, there isn't a one-to-one direct correlation, a direct line that you draw from the uh, Mosaic law to today. The law was given at a particular time to a particular uh, people within a particular context. So we don't just simply read those today and say, well, that settles it. It's in the law, therefore, we need to apply it. But neither do we swing the pendulum the other way and just assume that because they're in the law, they're somehow irrelevant. Nothing in the Bible is irrelevant, including the Mosaic law. Instead, we have to then do the hard work of working through what aspects apply today and how they apply today, if not directly. So there are elements of the capital punishment in the Mosaic law that would not apply today in a direct manner. For instance, 
killing someone who breaks the Sabbath, right? We're no longer under the Sabbath, so we're no longer under that command. But the principle of capital punishment in general should be maintained, particularly in light of its repetition in the historical and prophetic literature in the Old Testament and the repetition in the New Testament. As we saw, Romans 13.4 supports that idea with the sword of God. So capital punishment isn't only in one place in Scripture. By the way, even if it was, that wouldn't make it any less authoritative. When God says something in one place, that doesn't make it less authoritative than when God says something in multiple places, but it does help us understand when he says something in multiple places, in multiple stages of redemptive history, it helps us understand maybe we're not actually misunderstanding this. So the consistent witness of scripture is that those who sinfully take another human life forfeit their own life. Why? Because life is sacred and capital punishment is what most manifests that sanctity of innocent life. Here's my point. I think that most of the modern opposition to capital punishment is because we have this tendency in our flesh to try to be more holy than God. There seems to be in our culture this pietistic idea that violence is inherently bad and that all killing is inherently sinful and thus Christians should be above that. The problem with that is that God isn't above that. Jesus isn't above that. In fact, Jesus will one day return and kill a whole lot of people. So don't try to be more holy than God. Zach talked about this a bit last week, that pacifism uses terms like tolerance and love and grace, but it misuses those terms. In fact, as we saw last week, uh, consistent pacifism is actually evil. If I see someone attacking you, and I have the means to help you, and I choose not to do so, that's not bravery, that's not love, that's not grace, that's not forgiveness, that's cowardice, that's callousness. Pacifism is wicked. By the way, why are we always picking on pacifists? Because they won't fight back, right? It's like taking Halloween candy from a sleeping baby. So yes, the Bible says there are times that we should turn the other cheek. There are times that we should endure insult and hardship There are times that we need to do that, but there are also times that we should fight back. There are times that we should resist, and there are even times for capital punishment. Wisdom demands that we wrestle with which is appropriate in each circumstance. Now, to this point, we're just discussing the theory. Capital punishment as a concept. Capital punishment per se. In other words, someone could agree with everything we've said to this point, think the Bible does support capital punishment, and yet still conclude that capital punishment as it's practiced in America in the 21st century or some other country or some other context today is unethical or immoral. Kind of like in just war theory. I think all Christians should recognize uh, and agree with the tenets of just war theory, but there is then freedom to wrestle with uh, the degree of the justness of particular wars, whether or not this war or this war uh, was just or not. So let's talk briefly about the application of capital punishment uh, in individual instances, when it should be applied and how. When should capital punishment be applied? By this question, I, I actually mean two different things. First, that when we talk about capital punishment, notice that the definition includes the idea that we're talking about capital crimes. We're talking about serious offenses, but what is a capital crime? What should be categorized as a serious enough offense to merit the death penalty? This is an area where I think Christians have a bit of freedom to be able to disagree and to debate. What's really difficult is that the Bible is only going to give us these criteria 
within the context of Israel as a theocracy under the Mosaic Covenant. So lots of things were capital crimes. And a lot of them we would agree with today, things like homicide or kidnapping or child sacrifice, but there's also things that seem like really strange reasons for capital punishment today. Dishonoring your parents, forsaking the Sabbath, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, witchcraft, blasphemy, even perjury in some instances. So Christians have some freedom to be able to disagree on what crimes today should be considered capital punishment or or capital offenses. But as far as our country is concerned, in 2008, the Supreme Court in Kennedy v. Louisiana ruled out the death penalty except uh, in cases where the victim's life uh, was taken. So there can't be a death penalty imposed where the victim's life was not taken. So basically, some form of murder is the only thing that that, uh, is uh, considered a capital offense in uh, America. Although it's really interesting because they've never really ruled on a case of espionage or treason where there was a potential for a lot of death, but it didn't actually uh, happen. But that's the first question we should ask uh, when asking the question, when should it be applied? And under what circumstances? What crimes? But then you also have to consider what are the qualifications for establishing the propriety of the penalty? In other words, uh, far more serious crimes should demand more serious punishments, but along with that, there should also be more serious standards for assessing guilt. The higher the crime, the higher the punishment, the higher standard for assessing guilt. And when it comes to capital punishment, Scripture gives us some helpful measures. It talks about the standard of proportionality in uh, what's called lex talionis, the law of the talion, the uh, eye for eye sort of principle. So I think a good starting point or a good starting principle for Christians to think about, uh, crime should be considered capital punishment when when they're similar enough to murder in the degree of evil that they involve. I think that's the application of lex talionis, eye for an eye and so forth. There's also the idea of certainty of guilt. That's why there's a requirement of multiple witnesses and so forth. There's also the idea of intent, why there's a distinction that exists in the Mosaic law uh, between murder and unintentional killing, similar to our modern distinction in American law between murder and something like manslaughter or, uh, or negligent killing or something like that. And then there's also the idea of due process. Right? So the, the Bible is going to assume that you have the right to defend yourself, the requirement of evidence, the questioning of witnesses, multiple witnesses, and all of these sorts of things. And so where those are lacking, capital punishment should not apply. There should be these higher standards for these higher crimes and higher punishments. Now, how should this be applied? Biblically, the idea was that it was to have a few elements. Right? Capital punishment in the Bible had to be public. That was a, a necessary aspect of it. It also had to be immediate. In fact, uh, Ecclesiastes talks about sin increasing where punishment is delayed. And so you see this immediacy to it as a deterrent for the uh, community and uh, also as uh, proper retribution for the crime. And then it had to, uh, to be at the hand of the one who is most offended. For instance, if a wife is unfaithful, the husband has to participate and vice versa. Or if the crime is against the community, then the entire community participates through something like stoning that individual. But beyond that, there wasn't a lot of prescription as to the uh, particular means. Uh, In America, obviously we see it's not public, right? It's it's uh, typically performed in a prison. It's not immediate, and the offended party doesn't get to participate. Uh, That's probably, those elements are probably why it's less effective as a deterrent, right? Anyone remember Larry Nassar? 
the gymnastics uh, coach who assaulted a number of girls. Well, he was being sentenced. I don't know if you saw this YouTube video, but uh, one of the parents uh, of, of three girls that he had actually uh, assaulted asked the judge for five minutes alone in the room with Nasser. All right, what's the idea there? That he wants to be a participant in this guy's uh, judgment, in this guy's punishment. I bet, I bet there would be a whole lot less crime today if we actually allowed things like that if the aggrieved party got to participate and if it was public. But those are not the case because the court has uh, interpreted the Eighth Amendment, which protects citizens from cruel and unusual punishment from ruling out some of those things. It's also sometimes been used to, uh, uh, to rule out certain means of execution. Throughout US history, there have been a number of means. There's been hanging. By the way, the last legal hanging was in uh, 1923 with a guy named Nathan Lee, Zach's great-great-grandfather, right? Probably. Uh, after that, electrocution was used here in Texas and then lethal injection. In other states, you also have firing squads and things like poison gas. But again, there's freedom. There's uh, the opportunity for, for Christians to, uh, to debate uh, some of these questions, even within a general acceptance of capital uh, punishment. So with that in mind, I want to address a couple of common objections uh, and then we will uh, we'll do some Q&A. We won't have time to go into depth on all of these but at least want to consider these because these are most often the biggest responses by those opposed to capital punishment uh, uh, in theory. The first one, the first objection is the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, all right? In response, I would just say, the Bible doesn't actually say that, right? The Bible doesn't ever say, thou shalt not kill. We talked about this earlier. The command is not, thou shalt not kill, that might be what your old King James Version said, but that's a bad translation of the Hebrew, which is why almost all modern translations say, thou shalt not murder, because murder is different from killing. The word in Exodus 2013 is ratzak, which refers to unrighteous killing as opposed to righteous killing. We see that particular Hebrew word, ratzak, it's used 47 times in the Old Testament. It's never used in the context of capital punishment or warfare. So for example, Numbers 35, 16, the murderer shall be put to death. Those are two different Hebrew words there. The murderer, ratzak, shall be put to death, mot. In other words, murder is bad, capital punishment is good. So you can't use thou shalt not kill as an argument against capital punishment. What about turning the other cheek? Well, that has to do with you as an individual and uh, in, uh, distinguished from the idea of the government and, uh, and acting in their official role as uh, the government. It has nothing to do with the context of the state uh, punishing capital crime. If you really believe that this text rules out capital punishment, you would also say that this text rules out any sort of punishment. You would say that there can't be a fine because it says turn the other cheek. So if someone were to murder, you should let them murder somebody else. But obviously we say that is not what's going on there. And, uh, and so if someone were to steal from you, you would say in every situation that you're commanded to give to them, and we say obviously that's not what uh, is going on there. So we have to recognize that there, is, there are some contexts where turning the other cheek doesn't apply. And the moment you say that, you concede the point and you actually lose the argument. Let me give you an example of this. This past week, my four-year-old daughter told me she had to give my one-year-old son a spanking because he pulled her hair. Now, was she right? Of course not. She doesn't ever have the right to give my son a spanking. But does that mean that I don't have that right? No, of course not. 
That's what's going on here. Turning the other cheek is about what you as an individual can do. It has nothing to do with what the state can or cannot do. What about a whole life or consistent ethic? What is that? Well, this is a really big one now in an election year. People who say they're pro-life, but nonetheless vote for a pro-choice candidate because they say they have a, quote, whole life ethic. And that means that we should care about more than abortion. Now, I agree, you should care about more than abortion, but what is often then used as an example are things like capital punishment. But when we talk about being pro-life, we mean pro-legally innocent life. When it comes to life, we always have to differentiate between legally innocent and legally guilty life. It is absolutely ethical, it's absolutely consistent with scripture to oppose things like abortion and euthanasia, while also at the same time supporting capital punishment and just war. That's not inconsistent, that's not a contradiction. In fact, the bulk of Christian tradition has said that there is no inconsistency, there's no contradiction between those positions, between opposing abortion, opposing euthanasia, and supporting capital punishment and just war. The entirety of Christian tradition has said that's not a problem whatsoever. And yet for whatever reason, we think it's a problem uh, today. So the problem with the way that most people use the phrase whole life ethic is that they end up sacrificing one truth of scripture for the sake of others. Let me encourage you, instead of having a whole life ethic, instead I would encourage you to have a whole Bible ethic rather than picking and choosing certain truths to uphold. What about loving your neighbor? That's another argument that some people use. Well, first, I think that following scripture is always what's most loving. But this is similar to the idea of turning the, the cheek, right? Loving your neighbor has to do with you and how you deal with someone as an individual, not how the, stri- the state should treat a murderer. Besides, how loving is it to a victim to not pursue justice for their murder? It's really funny how in our culture, when we talk about loving your neighbor, it always seems to favor the guilty party rather than the innocent party. I think that the way that you most love your neighbor who has been murdered or raped or whatever it is, is to actually pursue punishment against the person who uh, perpetrated that crime. What about uh, Matthew 26, 52? Does that somehow rule out capital punishment? Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In response, I would say, you also got to look at Luke 22, where Jesus explicitly commands his disciples to get swords, but I'm not going to go into details because next week we're going to talk about self-defense. That's the entire uh, subject matter le- uh, next week. What does the Bible actually say about self-defense and weapons and those kinds of things? Number six, what would Jesus do? People use this, what would Jesus do uh, as if Jesus would be opposed to capital punishment? In response, I would say that Jesus does whatever the Bible says, right? Jesus is God. God wrote the Bible, so I'm not going to pretend like those are in actual tension. Besides, one day Jesus is going to come back, and what's he going to do? He's going to kill most of humanity, right? So I don't find that to be a strong feather in the cap of the anti-capital punishment uh, position. Um, The the next two, I think, are the most uh, common from a uh, non-Christian worldview. Uh, Number seven, what about abuses? Right? Now, it's certainly true that there could be historical discrimination at play in our justice system or that there are innocent persons on death row. Those kinds of things do tragically happen. In fact, uh, in fact there's, a, there's an entire organization that's devoted themselves to uh, helping people who are on death row who are wrongfully convicted called the Innocence Project. They do great work, but that doesn't therefore mean that we should get rid of the penalty. 
Instead, it means that we should work to have better standards and greater due process. In other words, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just get some better bathwater, I guess. That's not really a saying, but um, the, uh, the fact that there are abuses doesn't mean that you actually throw out the concept. It means that you reform the concept so that it actually functions uh, more in line with uh, biblical standards. And then lastly, there's an argument that it doesn't work. And in response, I think we should always ask the question, Work to do what? This seems to be a consequentialist view of ethics. In other words, that something is right only if it actually works, instead of whether or not it corresponds to objective uh, truth. And this question also presumes that capital punishment should meet some other role of punishment besides retribution. Right? So oftentimes what people are arguing for is that it doesn't work because they have a different definition or standard of justice. It doesn't work for rehabilitation. Well, of course it doesn't work for rehabilitation. It's not supposed to. It doesn't work for restitution or it doesn't work for deterrence. In response to that, I would say maybe. Some studies are unclear. Maybe the fear of death does deter. Maybe there are dozens of other potential killers who didn't kill simply because they didn't want to be put to death. We really have no way of knowing. But regardless, I thought this was interesting. I read this that someone pointed out. Here's who it does deter, right? The murderer, right? In other words, if you execute Ted Bundy, I don't know if it's going to deter the next serial killer, but I know that it will definitely deter Ted Bundy from ever killing again, right? But besides all of that, we've already mentioned that the Bible assumes that the primary reason for capital punishment isn't rehabilitation, it isn't restitution, paying back of the victim, it isn't deterrence, but it's rather retribution, God-ordained uh, justice through state-sanctioned vengeance. So the bottom line, when it comes to all of these objections, they're taking passages, they're taking ideas that have nothing to do with capital punishment, and then attempting to superimpose the meaning of those texts onto this other subject. This is really the issue. When someone argues against capital punishment, there are two main strategies. One is to argue about particular instances or abuses, and then to attempt to generalize those. The second is to use passages that have nothing at all to do with the context of the role of government and capital punishment, but instead have to do with the role of individual believers and then uh, to exercise grace and mercy. So for all of these reasons, I think it's much more consistent with the Christian worldview in general, in scripture in particular, to say that capital punishment as a theory, as a concept, capital punishment per se, is not sinful, even while still wrestling with the best application of these principles within our actual society. So you might still say, I don't think the capital punishment in America today is great, and you have freedom to do that, but I think the Bible is going to consistently say that the concept itself is, uh, is biblical. And with that, let's pray and then we'll do some Q&A, maybe some spicy questions. Father, I confess this is, uh, in a sense, not a, not a fun topic uh, to talk about, that there is, uh, even as we can, can recognize that your, your word is good and right and true and biblical and beautiful and all those kinds of things, that still there is in us this innate resistance to the idea of death, of killing, of all those kinds of things. And so uh, some of that is a result of culture. Some of that is uh, just a reflection of the idea that uh, we hold the sanctity of life as a very high value. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, where uh, we have presupposition or biases that are uh, formed by culture and not by your word. Would you help us to amend those that we might think more biblically and, uh, and thus live more rightly? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.